The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. And today, our special guest is a woman named Dr. Juliette Hahn, who is a PhD, and she is the Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer of a company called Cambrian Biopharma. I am also joined by my uh, esteemed colleague, Ujwal Piatti, who is the practice leader for our scientific affairs and um, Medcoms group. And uh, I think you'll probably have remembered him from some of our other thought leadership that we've done. But today we talk a lot about uh, what is happening in the aging space and what particularly Cambrian is doing. One of the things I really think you'll appreciate is the way Juliet frames how we should be thinking about aging and all the implications, how we look at it from a U.S. perspective versus a global perspective, and maybe what we can expect over the next 10 or 20 years. So with that, please stick around, listen in. I promise it will be worth your while and um, listen to the next 30 minutes of pure smartness. Thank you. Well, welcome everyone. And today uh, you're gonna be really excited about the content and the topics that we're talking about. They're timely, they're gonna be big picture, they're gonna make you really think differently uh, about things like aging. I won't steal any thunder, but before we get started, I always love to find out how our guests got into the field they did. And I will also acknowledge my friend Uj, who's here. So Uj, thanks for joining us as the guest host. So Dr. Han, you have an intriguing background that started with an inspirational story, and it sort of speaks to how you first got into neuroscience. I always love to hear these backstories. So would you be able to share that with us? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. And I would like to tell you about two triggering events that actually brought me to why I'm here in front of you today. So in high school and throughout junior high and high school, actually, I was volunteering on weekends at this mental health care program on the mornings. And this program was to help relieve the parents from their children and sometimes adults who had serious mental disorders, ranging from autism to epilepsy to um, Down syndrome. And what I noticed, and this was in particular to Asian cultures, but I think this is in many other cultural groups, how much shame that parents felt in having children with mental disabilities. And I felt that it was unwarranted given these are congenital disorders that they were born with. And now we know enough science to understand it was not the fault of these parents at all. But I wanted to see if there are ways culturally, societally, and very much educationally, if there are ways to help parents and families and caregivers to help them understand that there is support for them, that it is not their fault. And it was during high school. And when I got, went off to college at UCLA, my high school teachers will be shocked to learn that I got a PhD in the sciences because highest my science was not my strong suit in high school, and I did not enjoy science at all. And that's because I thought science, the way it was taught, and it might be still taught today in high school and early, early stage, is rote memorization. How much can you memorize and regurgitate and take a quiz and see if you got it right? 
And to me, that was just not interesting enough for me to pursue. But I was lucky enough to take a general ed science course taught by a neuroscientist. So the way he approached science and anything scientific questions was, even if he knew the answer, he always replied back, how would you answer that question? And what kind of experiments would you design? And to me, then science became completely limitless. It sparked curiosity in me and allow me to explore not only intellectual pursuits, but also creativity. And pursuing neuroscience really enabled me to bring together these two incidents to say, what can I do and dedicate my life to, to bring better therapies to market, to help these individuals, but also increase cultural and societal awareness and education to help people find that these mental disorders are just like any other physical disorders is something that we should help out and it should try to improve, but nothing to be ashamed of or be guilty about. Well, thank you for that. And it's always interesting to find out, you know, what was that impetus? Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you have a newish role, right? You're, you kept your old role. You've got a new role. Um, I'm guessing your pay is probably still the same, but you know, double the responsibility, but for those listening (laughs) in, you know, I'm not sure everyone has heard of Cambrian biopharma yet. Let's talk a little bit about that, and then let's talk about this sort of evolution of your role change and what that means. Yes, Cambrian Biopharma is an R&D company targeting mechanisms of aging. And I can get into aging in um, just a minute, but how we work is that we create value in finding early stage science and taking them through clinical development as well. And then, but what makes us special is that instead of targeting one program at a time, we're able to distribute the risk because biotech is such a high risk business. And then by carefully distributing the risk, we're able to construct a portfolio where we have multiple winners. So we take multiple shots on goal. And then by making sure that correlations between the programs are also well quantified as much as possible, we're able to ensure that the shots that we take have the highest probabilities of success. Well, thank you for explaining that. And you do have a new role, right? So you were COO, you're now COO and CFO, Chief Financial Officer. And I think it would be good to know now that you are wearing those two hats to talk a little bit about uh, your plan or strategy on taking on more responsibility and maybe a little bit about what does a day in a life look like for Juliet? So in some ways, my day-to-day immediately doesn't change in that I have been doing both aspects of the role, but maybe it's making more explicit. You're right. The pay doesn't change. The roles and responsibilities have gone seriously up. (laughs) But this also combination of the role really does reflect how Cambrian is organized and how it works. So our finance department isn't just about finance and accounting. It also encapsulates portfolio management and portfolio theory. So what I found that biotech or pharma could benefit from that other industry, especially finance does really well, is risk modeling and portfolio optimization. And what I'm able to bring because of my experiences in finance is applying that knowledge to how biotech investments are managed. So not only do I have to understand all the R&D programs and where their inflection points, their growth areas, and how their valuations would work out, then I have to translate that operational findings to the financial uh, decisions and make sure that we're making the best sound decisions, not based on how I feel about an asset, 
which often as scientists, we get so excited and we want to continue to invest even if the data doesn't show exactly what they need to show. But really making sure that we're able to make quantifiable, smart decisions driven by data and their insights. By the way, this theory portfolio approach is really championed by economist and MIT professor Andrew Lowe. And he's written many articles around how biotechs can continue to optimize their asset allocation or capital allocation model. And I do think that this is just a starting point for biotech as an industry to how can we make drug discovery more capital efficient and make sure that we're not plucking down big wads of cash and not stopping programs when we need to in an efficient way. And it also reflects the growth stage in which Cambrian is at right now, where Financing isn't just about, hey, we have a late stage program, give us a ton of money to push that through. It's about being able to tell a sophisticated story to sophisticated financial investors to explain why our model is going to be less risky than their other typical biotech investments. And being able to bring my scientific background and speak to the programs and understand the operational complexities of scientific programs, I believe brings. Uh, strength in my ability to narrate that story. Awesome. Thanks, Juliet. All right. Going back to the topic of aging, aging is obviously such a complex area. You know, of all the challenges you could take on, why take on this daunting challenge? I think that by definition, challenges should be daunting. So I love that it's a daunting problem and it's such a universal problem. So we do want to solve as much as we can problems that are applicable to biggest swaths of people. So if anything, why not aging? I think more people should be interested in figuring out why we age, because that is one of very few processes that all of us are going to go through no matter where we are and when we're born. But reason why aging is really what we're trying to solve. We want to understand not only why we get sick and how to treat illnesses once we were sick, but we want to understand why we must accept the deterioration of our physicality and mental capacities that happen when they do. And I think that because for most of human evolution, we have been dominated by bigger problems, right? Like the um, illness, like for a long time, we're starving to death. We need to you know, build fire and catch food. And then we were being taken out by environmental factors such as storms and what other, what have you. So we have to build housing. Then we were being taken out by um, illnesses. So viruses, for example, plagues, right? So we had to deal with that. So in some ways, we thought it was lucky that we lived long enough to feel joint pains, your eyesight going away because you didn't get to you survived all the other catastrophes that everyone else had to go through before you. And I think we are at this privileged era where we can now, while we're solving other problems that continue to persist, we're now at the next stage of evolution and how we can make our lives better. So we're targeting and thinking about aging, not as a question of how do you want to live longer? But question of how do we make sure that the years that you are living is with the best quality of health as well as quality of life? That's great. Thank you. That's, that's really interesting. Now, you touched on this earlier, but Cambrian has a really interesting model of biotech building. And in particular, when it comes to you know, addressing aging and specifically aging-related diseases, 
Can you go into that a little bit more for our audience? Absolutely. So because aging is such a complex scientific phenomenon, I mean, you can imagine where we cannot target one mechanism or one promising pill in order to come up with fountain of youth or prove out fountain of youth theory. So by design, understanding the science of aging is going to be complex. And our model reflects that complexity. We understand that we cannot go after one bet but we have to pursue multiple drivers of aging. And also in addition to that, our model is a reflection of evolution and learnings from the best practices from other industries, example finance that I had mentioned, as well as biotech and pharma. And as far as finance goes, our model is applying the best practice from venture capital, which is taking many shots on goal in high-risk areas, or private equity, which is close oversight of strategy and operations to maximize likelihood of success, as well as C-Corp. Because drug making takes so long, we don't want to be held to some timeline as a fund that you have to liquidate. So we want that flexibility and give longevity to our capital allocation. And in addition to that, from biotech and pharma, by allowing us to have a broader portfolio as a pharma company would, and with the focus, because we have individual entities like a single biotech do, and they're able to really create a team that's focused on one program, we're able to apply the best knowledge and expertise um, learned from those models as well. Fantastic. Really interesting model that you're pursuing for sure. Are there particular pathways or mechanisms that you're particularly interested in, or would you say it's an interconnection of multiple pathways that is is really going to be the key here? So that's a question we get a lot from our investors too. What are you most interested in? What do you think is going to be the most promising target? Or as they would ask, tell me, you know which one is the winner, right? And I'm here to tell you that we don't take winner, one winner takes all approach when we think about aging at all. And in fact, it is exactly what you had mentioned about intermingling of how these mechanisms come together because our human bodies are so complex that way. And that's why our portfolio approach is going to enable us to bring the insights into the centralized data center so that we can not only go after each individual targets that we know are going to be important, but also find commonalities and convergence so that we're able to directly realize the synergies across the findings of different programs. Cool. Really interesting. How would you describe Kramer's approach to moonshots versus incremental advancement? And I know that there are different companies pursuing solutions for, for aging and thinking about moonshots. How do you think about that at Cambrian? And uh, can both coexist, both models, or do you view one to be more important than the other? So, Uj, this is, I would love to share with you one of the best career advices I've gotten from a mentor. Mm-hmm. And then he told me, and I was facing a daunting but challenging um, increase in scope at the time. And he said, you know, anything big can be broken down into something small. Mm-hmm. And that's how we think about moonshots versus advances that are making up those moonshots. And I think moonshot feels futuristic. It's kind of like magic where when you see the magic and you're like, that's cool. But once you understand the magic and behind the scenes technique, then it's not so cool anymore. So to us, the approach that we're taking is actually quite rationalized and we can break down as two as component parts. So how we're stage gating our progress into understanding 
um, health span is taking a stepping stone indication approach. What that means is instead of going after fountain of youth mechanism or one target that's going to cure all, we are also going after stepping stone indication. That is to say, going after known diseases with known FDA regulatory pathways and in known ways to get to market because we are realistic about needing to have proof of concept. So in this way, we are going to pursue known ways to advance our programs into the clinic and the market, and then taking those learnings to figure out how are we get combine those learning and some of its part to make something great and to help us holistically understand how our bodies age. So in some ways, yes, those are absolutely in parallel in progress, um, but I think that it's absolutely a rational plan in my mind. We got to the moon at some point, so shooting for the moon can't be that far off for us too. Great point. Well, Julian, I want to jump in. First of all, I love the advice you gave and I have a different flavor of that, which is like a uh, telephone pole to telephone pole, right? It's the same concept of instead of focusing on the same journey, I just did a 2000 mile drive with my son from Nashville to the Bay area, but it's breaking things down into little pieces can make it much more approachable. So I think that's great advice for anyone. I do want to sort of speaking of take a step back because Aging is such a huge topic, right? I mean, we could spend hours, if not thousands of hours talking about it. And I'd love to just focus a little bit on the principles by which you approach the idea of aging, as well as how we as a society need to think about aging differently. Because I have a feeling that we probably have some stereotypes or um, some ways of looking at it that are probably confining that we don't really need to, to use. So really the way the society things about aging today also is reflected on the way we built our entire infrastructure as everything from not only healthcare to education, but to what is expected of us in terms to careers. So we made this rigid paradigm of you go to school for 15, 20 years. Um, and if you get a PhD, maybe like 25 years, it feels forever. And then you go and pick a career and you stay in that career. And then maybe if you're lucky, you get to pursue something you're passionate about for about next 30 to 40 years. And then you have hopefully 10, 20, max 30 years of some um, time where you get to not work, but maybe enjoy your life a little bit more, at which time is when your health starts to deteriorate. And everything from uh, retirement strategy, education system, how pension funds are designed is reflected on this one paradigm. But now we're starting to see cracks in that paradigm. Culturally, let's say, for example, our new generations are more increasingly pursuing shorter work, number of years worked at one company. They're more embracing the possibility of switching careers, pursuing passions. So already we're seeing this fracture of how we think about work versus life and what it means to create a fulfilling life as society. And when we think about that and think about what role aging has as part of that, that also becomes one we should bring into question. Why should we accept the way we decline at the timeline in which decline today? Now, this could have implications, of course, on how we then restructure the rest of the infrastructure that I just mentioned. For instance, let's just assume that you can live to be 100 years old healthily. 
how would you think about or how should we think about education? Should education really be condensed into age of 18, maybe 22? And then what is the rest of your life education look like? Are people expected to work for a big chunk of 30, 40 years to enjoy life, right? We now can become much more intercalated in which we curate the chapters of our lives. And I think that society should head there already, even if we don't increase health span dramatically today. I think that concept of waiting until a certain age to do something should no longer be acceptable. And that also is reflected on how fast data and technology is progressing in our lives. So to say, and we constantly think about how do you upskill workers? How do you think teaching new skill, but how, why should it be that you learn again, everything up front and apply it later? We should be smarter about if we know more about our lives and timelines, then how should we redesign our Gantt charts? And I don't think we had as humans luxury to do that before because most of us didn't live to be this long. A lot of us are living to be that long in the late seventies. If you're in the U.S., uh, maybe low 80s if you're in many other countries. So I think it's time that we all think of aging differently. Well, first of all, I love your holistic way of thinking about that because I think a lot of us just think about like, what does our skin look like? What are our muscles and our body feel like? We don't think about the implications of stretching it out by another 30, 40 years and how that could foundationally change how we approach life. So thank you for that. I do also want to pick up on something that you said. You said a word, health span, which I love. And I think that this is going to be a cool concept if we can drill down into it. Let's talk to the audience about the difference between a health span versus lifespan. Yes, absolutely. And this is one we want to bring into common vernacular uh, going forward, this idea of health span. So the word lifespan really came into practice because people were dying prematurely because of other you know, viruses and um, environmental factors. But now that we're able to live longer because we're able to take care of ourselves better, we have to think about health span, which is number of years spent in good health, meaning that age 80, we should be worried about where am I traveling to? Who am I spending time with? Not so much about who is going to be at my nursing home. And that is to say, so secondary effect of increasing health span is longevity. But living long for the sake of living long without preventing decline of health is not attractive, which is why we want to talk about the number of years when we are able to live healthfully. And this is actually also drawing into attention the way a lot of our drug programs or health, prevent, health programs are designed today, which is to say, we wait until you get sick and let's try to treat it. But by that time, you have already deteriorated in health span. And number one in way to increase that span is to actually be more preventative focused. Well, it makes a ton of sense. One of the things that I think, obviously, I think a lot of people would love to live longer, right? And um, especially if we are able to change our Gantt chart. I do feel like one of the things that people forget about is that to live longer is more expensive, right? Because now there's, there's evidence that it's more expensive to treat chronic diseases. I have a funny feeling you have a great answer for this and would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it is more expensive to live longer, um, but it's much more expensive to live in an unhealthy way. I mean, they say, uh, 
a sick man only has one wish. A rich man has a hundred other wishes. So all that goes to show is that when one is sick, you can throw as they would give nothing else. They would, they're willing to give everything that they own in order to be healthier. And that's reflected in the way the burden on our healthcare system is we're willing to spend what we would like as much as we could like we have in order to live longer. And by the way, the amount spent doesn't necessarily equate to number of lives earned. So it's also things that what are we spending on that we should be spending on. There was data generated from World Organization on comparing countries and how much does a country spend on healthcare per capita? And U.S. is outpacing everybody, as you're probably not surprised by, in healthcare expenditure. But our years or our longevity or health span is, I think, up to five to six years shorter than comparable countries, OECD countries. And that goes to show that we're not spending on the right things. And some of the big drivers of aging for, for the U.S. or drivers of death include um, obesity, opioid crisis, uh, apparently uh, road accidents. <laughs> that's another thing. So that's an infrastructure problem that's causing uh, death in a lot of people, as well as homicide. So this is to say that we see aging, while Cambrian is mostly focused on healthcare and how do we prevent aging in one's body, I think that as society, we should think about if we all want to live in a long and healthy life, what are other things and other ways we should be investing into infrastructure, mental health, addiction training, addiction prevention, um, apparently maybe infrastructure into uh, public transportation or a road rage. I don't know what's causing all these um, accidents, but it goes to show that we need to invest in these other factors in order for money to go far and have impact. Well, it's fascinating. And I, I love that broader sort of look at things and had never thought about the infrastructure, the road rage. I'm sure we probably do more of that than others do. But um, thank you for your very thorough answer to that. Uj, I'll let you jump in for the next questions. Yeah, it's great. Juliet, that actually leads me into my next question, which is, what's your view on the way we approach health in this country versus globally? And I know you have some some thoughts there about how we think about health versus others. Yes, I think this is another reflection of the way U.S. healthcare system is organized versus other countries, where probably other countries are mostly single payer system. So it really onus is on the government and society to share how to be healthy um, versus in the multi-care system, that responsibility is pushed out to the individual and their healthcare providers. And then that's where we start to see gap in terms of healthcare disparity and access and equity. For instance, in order to get advice that is timely for you and individualized for you, you have to, it's stroke of luck in, in some instances that your doctor is able to provide that personalized advice. There isn't as much top-down infrastructure to disseminate information as they come out. And so even though U.S. is leading in terms of research and findings and all this information generation, that information is not packaged in a way that is usable for the public and then allow people to apply them to their lives versus in other governments or in other countries, they're able to apply that type of knowledge to their social um, social programs or societal uh, availability or so 
social programs. For instance, it might be reflected in the way lunch or food is provided in hospitals or, or schools. In the U.S., again, it's pushed out as an independent and individual choice. And I think this ends up creating bigger problem between the haves and the have-nots and who's able to get the right information and who is at the risk of misinformation. And that is absolute unfortunate truth about the multi-payer model and the way we're organizing and where the incentives are between the providers um, and patients or consumers. Great, thank you. Earlier on, we were discussing a little bit about the Cambrian approach to cultivating science. I know you have thoughts around the idea that no science should be a dead end. Can we go into that a little bit more? Yes, this harkens back to the way IP is. First of all, I think IP is great. Absolutely, you should incentivize IP generators to reap some revenue so that they can hopefully put that money back into further investments. At the same time, because of that procedure, if a company realizes that science, they have run the product IP, so they're no longer generating revenues, there's no incentive for them to now relook at that data and see if there's a way that data could be leveraged to apply to something else. So this becomes a discrete silo of IP data collected, and that's abandoned because it is no longer generating revenue for that company. Now, because of that dead end, we have tremendous amount of scientific value that's lost. And also because these are owned by private companies, though there's no way to centralize this knowledge and figure out where can we derive learnings across these disparate data sets. And then what we like to do at Cambrian is one, the portfolio approach we spoke about is how can you apply the learnings from one type of program or one mechanism to another. But we also believe that uh, our two-stage approach, which is proof of concept, stepping stone indication to taking that to understand aging is how we avoid the dead end pro problem, which is that once we have a proof of concept of that IP and a product being on the market is done, that's only a start of that insight generation. And then we believe that, that we can always lever up that uh, finding in order to apply to a different problem. So I hope that other companies can also see beyond immediate outcome of profit potential. There are ways to glean understanding and create knowledge, even if you don't see a direct linear path to profits. It's really intriguing because I think in discussing this with you, one thing that strikes me is the the answers to aging and preventing disease of aging could be out there right now, right? It's it's just a matter of stitching them together in the right way, which you're you're trying to do. Absolutely, because there's data, as we all know, data is only as good as the question you ask of it, mm -hmm. um, and as well as how it's organized. So that data could be sitting there that could be groundbreaking, but it was organized in a way to answer a different question. And that is something that I often think about. How much are we duplicating efforts? Right. Because we don't even know someone has already produced this knowledge. Right. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, now that you've blown our mind, Juliet, I do want to wrap up with a final question. I want to talk a little bit about the impact you wish to make as a leader on society overall. And what does a success look like for you I know this is always a little bit tricky because we know we don't know what's going to happen in five minutes, never mind in the next 10 or 20 years, but we'd love to get your thoughts on that. So I think there's, I think about 
your question in two different levels. One is to society, what value would I like to create? And then two is actually at a more human level, because I am one person, uh, what kind of impact do I want to have on people I do meet? So on the first level, I hope that the work that we're doing and the proof of concept of this model can be translated successfully to other industries. For example, there's a ton of research in climate science or any other types of science that are in academia that are bottlenecked because they're not applied or translated in some way. And I think that that is incredibly too bad and a ton of value lost to how much we can be bettering our society. So if I think about one impact is that the model of how we can provide good while progressing science while generating profits and revenues can be translated to bring value into other industries beyond healthcare. As far as on personal, what I would like to really look back and say I wish I did was that I was able to nurture a group of leaders. So it's not just that I was able to lead a team, but it's that I was able to inspire other people to become leaders themselves. And that's something I think deeply about. And that's something that I think would be absolutely meaningful, even if all else failed, that I was able to cultivate the next cohort of leaders. Well, if anyone can pull it off, it's absolutely you. Um, So thank you for that. And thank you for all of this. I do want to wrap us up at this point. And so uh, for those listening in, we've had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Juliet Han, who is the not only COO, but now CFO as well of Cambrian Biopharma. I've also had the luxury of uh, spending some time with one of my favorite people here at Real Chemistry, Ujwal Piatti. And Uj is the practice leader of our scientific and medical affairs group. So thanks to you both. And thanks for the listeners. I'm Aaron Strout, the chief marketing officer and Uh, day-to-day host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. Really appreciate you both. Thank you very much for having me. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.